Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. I'm Andrew, and I lead Global Council's office in Singapore. We are privileged today to be hosting my former boss, Tan Boon Jin. Boon Jin is the CEO of Singapore Exchange Regulation, an independent regulatory subsidiary of SGX. A market regulator today, Bunjin was previously also a policeman at the Commercial Affairs Department, a central banker and a corporate lawyer. So without further ado, let's begin in, uh, in Singapore and discuss the role uh, of the regulator and how policy is made uh, in this country. Now, now Bunjin, I mentioned that uh, you've had a career spanning policymaker, uh, enforcer and regulator in Singapore. You know, you're, you're evidently someone well-versed with our capital markets regulatory ecosystem. How would you describe Singapore's approach to regulation and some of the unique uh, considerations regulators here have when they craft regulations? Thank you, Andrew, for the kind introduction. First and foremost, we operate a disclosure-based regime because we believe in empowering investors and giving them as much choice as possible in the way they allocate capital. But this comes with certain caveats. The disclosure-based regime originated in the West, and the system there is different from ours. Private enforcement there is stronger because they have contingency fees for lawyers and class action lawsuits, and we don't. And the investor profile is different. We have more retail investors compared to the West. The second thing I want to highlight is that Singapore is a relatively young country. And the Singapore exchange is a relatively young exchange. So what we are doing is to speed up the learning process to reach the maturity levels in other markets that took a longer period of time. The final point I want to highlight is that we are in an international exchange. More than 40% of our listed companies are from outside Singapore. What this means is that we need to strike a balance between investor protection and leaving it to market forces that is different from the balance in the West. So you will see us do things like issue trading queries when there is uh, unusual trading or disclosure queries when we feel corporate disclosures are inadequate to enhance our disclosure-based regime. Things that you will not see regulators in the West doing because we have more retail investors. You will see us constantly trying to raise standards in the market community, new rules, new guidance, capacity building, investor education, because we are trying to build a more mature marketplace. And the international dimension poses additional challenges for us, not just in terms of enforcement because of jurisdiction issues, but even at the point of IPO, in terms of not being familiar enough with an overseas environment to do proper due diligence. So this is the constant balancing exercise that we as regulators are engaged in because it's not just about investor protection. There must be a role for market discipline as well to allow the market to find its own feet to drive innovation and development. Thanks for that, Bunjin. You know, let's also talk about the Singapore Exchange Regulation, right? And it's, uh, dare I say, unique role uh, as a frontline regulator. I want to ask you, you know, essentially three questions in one, right? What does it mean to be a frontline regulator? You know, how did this model come about? 
and, and what are the benefits of this model when it comes uh, to working with stakeholders in, in, in the regulatory ecosystem? The best way to explain SGX regulation as a frontline regulator is to look at three dimensions. So the first is location. We are an exchange level regulator embedded within the exchange. The second is real-time regulation versus regulation by way of review or audit. So for example, we perform real-time trading surveillance to detect unusual trading activity as well as real-time corporate surveillance to look at the disclosures made by our companies to see if they are adequate. The final dimension is being the first touch point. So for example, in the IPO process, we are the first touch point or the first port of call for companies to submit their listing applications. So that's what defines us as a frontline regulator, being embedded within the exchange, conducting real-time regulation, and being the first touch point for regulators. In terms of how we are set up, to make explicit our independence and to address any questions about conflicts of interest, we are housed within a separate subsidiary of the exchange and we report to our own board of directors that is independent of the board of our parent exchange. And the primary advantage of this whole arrangement is speed to market and reaction time. If there's a trading incident or disclosure lapse, we are the first to detect it. And because we are embedded in the exchange, we are in the best position to address it. And because we are closer to the market, we are more sensitive to trends and feedback. We understand our stakeholders better and we can react more quickly as well to engage them, to make changes to our rules or to make changes to trading in a microstructure. But how do you work with the central bank on this? So where does MAS, where, where does the Monetary Authority of Singapore come into this? Well, um, the, the central bank is also an uh, integrated uh, financial services supervisor. So I would say, um, I will go back to, again, to my uh, drawing the distinction between real-time regulation and regulation by way of review uh, or audit. So um, their form of regulation is uh, non-real-time. It's uh, more by way of review audit. Okay. Now, I'm going to push you a little bit. Th there is also criticism of the model you just described, right? So, you know, I understand the refrain. Ecosystem matters. You know, it takes a, a village to mold a good corporate governance ecosystem, uh, you know, a self-governing marketplace. Now, the criticism essentially is that this absolves the regulator from uh, very real responsibilities. Now, how would you respond to that? The way I would describe it is division of labor with the best man for the job doing the job. You know how teachers are always saying that parents need to play their part also because the teachers can't be with the children all the time. So parents spend way more time with the children and are better placed than teachers to do certain things. So in the same way, we as regulators are not sitting with the companies 24-7 uh, compared to say directors and auditors who are spending more time with the company dealing with their respective areas. Directors and auditors are better placed to make sure that the internal controls are in place and financial reporting is being done properly. So that's the first point. 
The second point is that the market community comprises so many different players that no one regulator has jurisdiction over all of them. Over directors, auditors, sponsors, investors, and lawyers, there's no one such body that has jurisdiction over all of them. Having said that, there's still scope for us as the exchange regulator to exercise some leadership. So for example, we collaborate with uh, industry bodies that we don't regulate, like the Law Society, to come up with best practice guides for corporate lawyers, as well as big scale collaborations with multiple industry bodies, including lawyers and auditors, to produce an anti-insider trading guide. And finally, there is strength in numbers. It's much better to have multiple sets of eyes rather than a single set of eyes, to have multiple gatekeepers rather than a single gatekeeper. So it's a better system of checks and balances and leads to better outcomes. Thank you, Bunjit. I want, I want to shift uh, um, the attention so far at home uh, to something more global, right? So a lot has been made of COVID-19's devastating uh, impact on the real economy uh, and how capital market gains uh, have in fact provided a distorted mirror to this reality. The pandemic has been an unprecedented event on many fronts. It's created a lot of unpredictability, which makes it difficult for businesses to react and update shareholders. Uh, and at the same time, investors are dealing with higher market volatility, right? That means to say that uh, run-of-the-mill disclosures are, are, are practically of no worth. So you recognize this problem in a regulatory column uh, you published in April 2020. Uh, you know, it sets out the regulators' expectations of disclosure uh, during the pandemic. The question here is, I mean, there's, there's actually a separate um, um, but important point uh, to be made here about regulatory communication and, and how you've been actually incredibly active on, on, on that front. Uh, but today I want uh, to ask you about COVID-19's impact on capital market regulation. Here in Singapore, uh, you know, we thought we were, we were out of the woods. I personally bought uh, tickets to Hong Kong. I was due to fly uh, next week. Uh, uh, but then, of course, the, 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 the travel bubble burst uh, and we now have to postpone uh, this second time. So what are the top concerns you have about COVID-19 capital markets uh, from a regulatory perspective, right? How has, how, how has the pandemic affected uh, LISCO so far? And, and where have you tried to sort of more narrowly define what needs to be disclosed? And, 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 and where have you tried to show uh, more flexibility as a regulator in light of, of these unprecedented times? As you can imagine, this has been a challenging period and we have many concerns. But let me focus on three areas. So the first is on disclosures. I remember in the beginning, companies with operations in China had a lot of difficulty completing the year-end audit and releasing their full-year financial results. Then things happened very quickly and soon we ourselves were in lockdown as well. So the timeliness of disclosures was affected. And of course, we understand that if the auditors are not able to complete their work, and companies cannot release their audited results and we were accommodative. But at the same time, we also made it very clear that companies should disclose as far as possible the impact on their operations. But not, not all companies are affected in the same way. Some companies actually did better because of COVID. Glove manufacturers, for example, had a stellar year. But we had to be careful about companies uh, hopping onto the COVID bandwagon a little bit like how in previous years, we had companies that suddenly announced that they were going to do blockchain. Now we had companies announcing something to do with COVID and we wanted them to explain very clearly what exactly they were doing and how this would affect their business. 
The second area is how to support companies during this period. Given the economic uncertainties and the poor business conditions for many sectors, many companies needed liquidity and needed to strengthen their balance sheet. We made it easier for companies to raise funds by raising the cap on the general share issue mandate so shareholders could pre-approve twice the amount of shares that can be issued to raise funds compared to previously. And I have to say, so far, our companies have been holding up well. Shareholders have responded to support the companies, and this shows that our capital markets are working well, so companies can raise funds when they need it the most. The final area is about enabling safe engagement. Given what's happening, it's not possible to have physical in-person general meetings, whether it's an AGM or a EGM, but many companies were not ready for virtual general meetings. The articles contain provisions that can only be satisfied by physical meetings. So we had to intervene together with the relevant authorities to override these provisions and enable virtual meetings to take place. Let's talk about, about something that has seen uh, a more recent resurgence uh, uh, in both uh, retail and regulatory interests, right? So special purpose acquisition vehicle, uh, uh, company, specs, right? So we now operate in a in a in a low yield environment, and and I I, I think that it has driven retail interest in more sort of novel uh, investment products such as specs. Um, now I think the narrative uh, is that this offers retail investors uh, the rare opportunity of buying into a high growth, uh, usually tech uh, startups. Uh, you know the potentials of Amazon's and Apple's of tomorrow, right? Just before the explosive growth uh, phase kicks in, so there has been been mixed moves by 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 different regulators uh, with regards to this. Uh, I was reading earlier this week that that Israel uh, uh, introduced this in their regime, and and the SEC is now considering new rules uh, to tighten their own regime. Right, so closer to home, uh, you know, this hit the news because Grab uh, last month announced its intention to go public uh, via such a mechanism with with Altimeter Growth Corp. Uh, and SGX itself has ended uh, uh, its consultation on specs uh, on the 28th of April last month. So can you just maybe share a bit more about Singapore's approach to specs uh, and how this approach uh, is different from, from the US approach? So specs have been doing very well in the US. And what we are seeing recently is uh, more blue chip sponsors coming to play in this space where they were not previously active. We are also seeing these specs targeting Asian companies. As you mentioned, Grab is a good example. Grab is a Southeast Asian tech company that's going public by these packing in the US. So the market feedback is that an Asian spec would make sense for such Asian targets because the investors here are more familiar with the target and it's good to be trading in the same time zone. So we launched a public consultation on specs, which uh, closed at the end of April. And now, now um, we are reviewing the responses. And um, we've also had the advantage of being able to observe the US experience. And we identified certain risks, such as free riding by some spec investors at the expense of others. And the possibility of the original spec investors being excessively diluted in uh, these spec. So we propose certain safeguards uh, without going into too much detail. That involves uh, putting some restrictions on the specs investors' right to redeem their investments and the warrants that they receive in return for their investment. At the same time, as you mentioned, 
we are aware that SPACs are a way of bridging the gap between the public and private markets and to give public investors the kind of opportunity normally reserved only for private equity. So this sort of early entry high return opportunity necessarily means that it's a high variance investment and SPAC investors and SPAC sponsors need to be properly compensated for taking on this risk. The success of a SPAC model really depends on getting this risk reward balance right. So the question is, how much do we prescribe and how much do we leave to market discipline? For market discipline to work, there must be enough information. So disclosure is going to be a key part of what we are going to describe. Uh, ultimately, what we want is to have a quality company listed on our exchange post DSPAC. And as far as possible, we want to make sure that sponsors and investors at every stage, whether it's the IPO stage or the DSPAC stage, we want them to be aligned in terms of uh, achieving that goal. One of the levers perhaps we should be looking at is how to get it right in terms of uh, everyone's skin in the game. So in summary, we see Asian specs as an alternative listing vehicle for Asian targets. And what we are concerned about is getting good Asian targets listed after the DSPAC. And our focus is going to be making sure that the sponsors and investors are aligned in terms of uh, achieving that goal. Would you like, I'm, I'm going to try and push you again here. You know, some have also described you know, this imminent introduction of SPACs, uh, and they've kind of aligned this with uh, moves in recent years. Uh, the removal of uh, quarterly reporting, uh, the introduction of low class share regime. And, and some have said, some have characterized this as basically the regulator uh, catering too much to business needs. And then now, you know, you're putting retail investors at risk. How, how, would, you, how would you position this? What's your take on this? I think we need to go behind each of the changes that you've described to look at the details and not just focus on the label. So starting with quarterly reporting, we have never had quarterly reporting for everyone. Rather, we had size-based quarterly reporting, meaning that if your market cap was over a certain size, you had to do quarterly reporting. And the feedback from the market was that this was too arbitrary and not meaningful. So what we did was to move to risk-based quarterly reporting, meaning that if your financials were poor or your accounts are qualified by your auditors, or we have some regulatory concerns, then you need to do quarterly reporting because you are higher risk and you should be giving more regular updates about what you're doing to fix the problems. So that's quarterly reporting. Turning now to dual class shares, which is basically about voting power. We were very careful to distinguish between voting power over commercial decisions and voting power over governance issues. So if you look at our rules on voting rights, you will see that the multiple voting rights can be exercised only for commercial decisions. When it comes to governance issues, like changing the articles of association or appointing independent directors, all the shares will carry one share, one vote. In other words, whether it's dual class shares or changes to quarterly reporting, these are not things that have binary outcomes, meaning that you know, once you go there, it's a choice between more or less investor protection. Rather, I see it as reaching a new equilibrium 
Dual class shares give investors more choices in terms of the types of companies they can invest in. And moving away from quarterly reporting encourages a focus on longer-term value creation. So ultimately, everything we, we do has the retail investor in mind. It's just a question of striking the right balance. Thank you, Eugene. Um, on that note, on that note of value creation, I want to quickly move on to, to regulation as a, as, a, as a force for good. Uh, particularly in the space uh, of sustainability. Um, the effects of climate change today uh, are felt around the world uh, and sustainability reporting uh, and climate-related disclosures uh, have grown in importance in, in, in different regimes. Uh, but a big challenge uh, for both regulators and issuers is the absence of common standards to guide reporting. Now, the recommendations by the Task Force on, on Climate-Related Financial uh, Disclosures, TCFD, seems to have the broader support from industry support uh, uh, participants right now. Um, but it looks like there is still a long way to go before we see anything like the equivalent of, you know, for example, uh, generally accepted uh, accounting principles emerge, right? So my question is, how do you see the needle moving? Does, does regulation lead or does the market lead? Meaning to say, uh, uh, do you allow the market to come to a consensus on standards before regulation steps in? Uh, how does the exchange facilitate this? So the drivers for change are going to have to come from both the public and private sectors simultaneously. And I say this because when it comes to climate change, we are running out of time. So if you go back to fundamentals, right, the role of an exchange is to enable price formation, price discovery, and the efficient allocation of capital. And translating this into sustainability or ESG terms, this means three things. The first is proper disclosure so that investors can make informed decisions about how they allocate capital and set prices in accordance with their ESG preferences. So to enable this, we have rules on sustainability reporting to require our companies to disclose their material ESG information. The second is capacity building and access to data. So we provide the resources and training for preparers of sustainability reports so they know what to do and what is important to investors. And at the same time, we also provide investor education so investors know how to read these reports. And we are a repository as well for all this information so that users can access it easily. And finally, we also have products so that investors can express their ESG preferences more easily by using these products. For example, we recently launched a suite of ESG futures contracts that track emerging market and Asian indices, but adjusted for ESG factors. So again, we come back to this theme of division of labor. There's clearly top-down pressure, both internationally and nationally, and this is going to manifest in the form of uh, carbon taxes and other incentives and penalties. But as I said earlier, to drive change, to drive change quickly enough, the pressure must come from investors as well. And this, this is where we come in to make sure that companies feel it when investors make their feelings known. Earlier this month, SDX Regulation and the National University of Singapore uh, published a study that looked at the quality of sustainability reporting by Singapore listed issuers. You know, it's something that you track uh, regularly. My understanding is that the last review was done uh, in, in 2019. How would you describe the state of, of sustainability reporting in Singapore? I would say that the results from the reviews that you have mentioned uh, were very encouraging. So we have a scoring system 
based on the disclosure of their material ESG factors, uh, performance, targets, and reporting framework. And the average score improved by 10 percentage points compared to the previous review conducted in 2019. And the most surprising finding was that the scores of our smaller companies improved more than the scores of our larger companies. In fact, small cap companies showed almost double the rate of improvement compared to the big caps. And the gap between small caps and big caps is now almost negligible. The overall quality has also improved. More companies are now issuing more balanced reports that discuss the favorable as well as the unfavorable parts of their ESG performance. And there's more effort to embed sustainability into their corporate structures and strategies. Having said that, the depth of disclosures is still not there in terms of explaining why the companies are choosing to focus on certain areas or why they are adopting certain strategies. And certainly more can be done in terms of metrics. More can be done in terms of the quantifiable stuff. So in addition to a review on the company side, we also conduct a survey on the user side, the investor side. And we find that there is still a mismatch between what companies are reporting and what investors want to see. So that's going to be a key focus for us this year, which is how to bridge this gap. Now, I just want to talk sort of cross, in a cross-jurisdiction way, right? So Europe is you know, widely seen uh, as a leader for sustainability reporting. Um, the UK, for example, uh, it will become the first country in the world to make TCFD-aligned disclosures fully mandatory across the economy by, by 2025. Uh, even closer to home, regionally, we will see that in Hong Kong, uh, financial institutions and listed companies will also be required uh, to disclose the financial impact of climate change in line uh, with TCFD recommendations also by uh, 2025. Now, how different uh, is the sustainability reporting journey in, in Europe, uh, where most of actually our, our audience members are uh, with Singapore? Uh, how And how would you say Singapore compares with, with the rest of Southeast Asia? Does it have a, a regional role to play or, or, or this is too ambitious? Currently, Europe undoubtedly has the lead, not just in terms of sustainability reporting, but also in terms of sustainable investing. As far as reporting goes, Europe imposes the obligation by way of directive at the European Commission level. And the latest proposed directive applies to both listed as well as non-listed companies. Whereas in Singapore, the obligation is imposed at exchange level and applies only to listed companies. Though I have to say that recently there has been more sector-specific activity here in Singapore. So for example, uh, both the, the financial sector as well as the maritime sector have issued guidance on sustainability reporting. In terms of sustainable investing, this whole idea of investing through an ESG lens is much more ingrained in the European psyche compared to here. Though, again, a recent survey of investors here showed an increasing awareness and interest in allocating capital based on ESG factors. And I've spoken about how we need to bridge the gap between what companies are reporting and what investors want, and how we are launching ESG products to make it easier for investors to translate their preferences into action. In terms of influence in ASEAN, we are talking about standards or frameworks, 
we are part of the team working on an ASEAN uh, green taxonomy. And we ourselves are only now consulting on the Singapore taxonomy. Whereas Europe has already had a green taxonomy up and running for some time now. The regional role that we play, I think, will be solution-specific rather than through standard setting or framework setting. So for example, we recently announced a carbon credit exchange called the Climate Impact Exchange to trade voluntary carbon credits. And we hope to add value by concentrating liquidity, providing better price discovery through a more transparent order book, and a verification process to ensure that the carbon credits listed and traded are of a high quality. So overall, I would say uh, Europe is still in the lead, but we are catching up as fast as we can. And our role in ASEAN is likely to be solution specific. Mm. I'm going to finish off with, so I'm conscious of time, two more questions. Um, one from an audience member. I'll begin with mine first, right? So the stock exchange uh, first introduced sustainability reporting five years ago. Right, half a decade later today, my understanding is that there are, there's some intention for you to update this uh, by specifying a format, uh, meaning the potential for more uh, comparability uh, uh, you know, could be introduced into our regime. So can you share more about your approach to this uh, and how you intend to basically find common ground uh, when there is, I think, currently a lack of consensus? Well, that's literally a billion dollar question. So if you survey the reporting landscape today, I think you will find a number of uh, reporting standards. And you have GRI, uh, that's the standard used in Europe. You have SASB, and that's the standard used in the US. And you have the CDP, the Climate Disclosure Project, and integrated reporting. So each of these standards has market power in its own way. We all agree that harmonization of standards is a good thing because the information disclosed becomes more comparable and user-friendly. And we have been talking about convergence of standards for some time now. But because of the market power that each of these standards commands, there isn't going to be harmonization unless they all agree or enough of them agree. And that's something that's only happening now because, as you say, because of the work done by the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD, so what's happened is that the major standard-setting bodies have agreed to throw their weight behind the recommendations of the TCFD and produced a prototype on how the TCFD recommendations can be reconciled to all the different standards. So now that we have a consensus behind the TCFD, the next step for us is to incorporate the recommendations of the TCFD into our listing rules. And we are planning to do this in the middle of the year. So that's on the climate front. So how about the rest of ESG? Well, there isn't the same kind of uh, consensus building on uh, social and governance factors, but from talking to investors, we can roughly identify the areas they are interested in. Women in leadership, for example, is an area where perhaps we should be providing more guidance to nudge things along. And that's just one example of several areas where we feel we can give some guidance even if it's by way of chapter rather than verse. I'm going to finish off with, an, with, with a question from the audience, right? So there's this widely held view in the UK uh, that Singapore has a lightly regulated financial market. And many who hold that view 
think that the UK, now that the UK has left the EU, it should emulate Singapore and turn the city of London into a soft Singapore on Thames. Do you recognize this image of financial regulation in Singapore or do you have a different view? I think as I mentioned earlier, um, our model is very different from that in the West. And uh, that's because of the uh, investor profile, the number of retail investors uh, that we have here. I think it's far, far upstreams that uh, in the West. So um, I would say that uh, the regulatory landscape really adapts to uh, the needs of the investors. And I think that the requirements and the needs of the investors uh, in the UK uh, are probably very different from the needs uh, here because I believe that there's a much higher degree of uh, institutional uh, participation in the UK. And I also feel that in terms of uh, private enforcement, there's probably a higher degree of uh, private enforcement, uh, partly as a result of the higher participation of institutional investors. Okay, thank you, Bunjin. I think that takes us to the end of today's call. Uh, you know, thank you so much for, for your time. I, I, I personally learned a lot and I, I thought you were, you were super insightful. Uh, for our audience members, please head to the Global Council website if you'd like to register for future events. And uh, everyone, please have a very lovely weekend. Thank you. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.